Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to thank you for joining us in the study of God's Word. I am extremely excited regarding the lesson you're about to hear. It's the first in a series of lessons that will be interspersed throughout 2005 at the Franklin Church. I want to be a part of a victorious church. I want the Franklin Church to be victorious. I want the church of which you are a part to be a victorious church. I firmly believe this can happen if we follow the example of the victorious church found in the first several chapters of Acts, the Jerusalem church. Pull out your Bible and study with me to find the eight keys of the Jerusalem church's victory. The signature plea of the Franklin Church of Christ is our desire to simply just get back to the Bible. We want to be what these churches were, doing what these churches did, teaching what these churches taught, accomplishing what these churches accomplished. Nothing less and nothing more. And I believe that in many ways we've done very well at that. As we've allowed the New Testament to guide us in the way we worship, and the way we work as a congregation, I believe that we have worked to be what they were. Yet despite all the similarities, I think there are some stark differences that remain still. For instance, let's take a look at the Jerusalem congregation. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, prior to the day of Pentecost, we find that Peter stood up in the middle of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons. But then on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. We find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 that they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The congregation at Jerusalem grew daily. And through that kind of daily growth, by the time we get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Notice that's the number of men. Not counting wives, not counting widows. I imagine that we are safe if we were to suggest that the Jerusalem congregation numbered somewhere between ten to 15,000 people, all as a part of this one congregation. Now, we know in Acts chapter 8 that they suffered a setback. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned and then Paul began a persecution. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The great majority of the members of this 10 to 15,000 member congregation were scattered away from Jerusalem. But the leadership remained, and perhaps a few others. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 21 and verse 20, when Paul returns to Jerusalem, James, the brother of our Lord, says to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Here in Jerusalem... Of the Jews that were there worshiping, they were thousands that had become Christians, even after the scattering. What an amazing example the Jerusalem church sets for us. An example of victory. An example of success for the Lord. An example of a congregation that is accomplishing great things for the kingdom of God as a whole, not just within their congregation. 
But as I look across the modern religious landscape, especially here in our nation, I'm not sure that I am aware of a single congregation that is like that. I'm not sure that I know of one single congregation that has been able to grow, maintain that growth, and yet maintain its grounding in God's Word and in the doctrine of Christ as the Jerusalem church did. I believe that the Jerusalem church can be an example for us. We can look at it and learn from it and see what made them victorious. What made this congregation successful? Despite what we may think, they faced the same obstacles of growth. People were not wholly different then than they are now. And yet they grew. And they helped Christians grow. I would like for us to take a look at this congregation and examine the keys that made them so victorious. We're going to look at eight things about this Jerusalem congregation. But as we look at these things, I don't want them to be a look at just the past. I want us to be looking at our future. I want us, as we consider these eight keys, to take a look at the Franklin Church of Christ. And if you're a guest here today, whatever congregation you're a member of, I'd love for you to take this home with you and think about in your congregation where you are making these your goals for the congregation. What we ought to be. I'd like for us to envision this as not the past, but is our future. However, I want you to understand that what you're going to find is something like nothing you've ever experienced before. We're going to have to boldly go where we've never gone before if we're going to be a church like Jerusalem. Because there's no congregation that we can look to today that is doing this as they did. The very first key that I would like for us to notice is that they were continually devoted to worship. Open up to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, right after the congregation was established, about 3,000 had been added to Christ's body as they had been saved. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it tells us about the very first things they were doing as Christians. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. If we want to sum all of this up, what we find is that these Christians in this congregation were absolutely and totally devoted to worshiping God. And why not? God had saved them. They had been lost in sin. They had been struggling to keep this old law perfectly in order to earn their way into heaven, they thought. Arguing over points of the law, and yet Jesus freed them from all of that. Worship wasn't a question for them. It was just natural. Notice it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It doesn't say they were devoted to the assembly, but we recognize from this that they would be there because when teaching was being done, they were devoted to it. They listened to it. They heard it. But not only did they listen and hear, they applied to their lives the teaching of the apostles, the doctrine of Christ. It says they were devoted to fellowship. Now, far too often we read the modern concept of fellowship into this word. 
The pulpit commentary and Reese and his commentary on Acts, however, make the point, and I believe rightly so, that the fellowship here is not our modern concept of just spending time together, but rather the, the same root word used here to describe fellowship is used down in verse 44 where it says, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. The fellowship here is actually talking about a fellowship in their giving to provide for the needs of the saints and to provide for the work of the church. They were devoted to giving, to fellowship, to having a common work together as they gave of their means to work together and to help Christ's church work as it was designed to work. It says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And we recognize from Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. This breaking of bread was the Lord's Supper as we participated in just moments ago. They were devoted to that and remembering the death of their Savior. And then it concludes by saying that they were devoted to prayer. Both congregationally and individually, we recently went through our own study on prayer and we learned how devoted they were. Praying on their own. Praying as a congregation. Gathering just with small groups of Christians and praying to accomplish the work of God. They were devoted to worship. In the Jerusalem church, they didn't have a lot of lessons, I would think, on attending the assemblies. There wasn't a question about how often they had to, quote, go to church. They were devoted to worship. It was just something they did. Because it said something else about them. They were devoted to worship. Not because they were trying to scratch off an assembly on their list, but because they were devoted to God. And therefore, they were successful. They were victorious. Secondly, as we consider this Jerusalem church, not only were they devoted to worship, but we find that they had unity. They were of one heart and one soul. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Such a profound statement. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. You remember in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, Jesus had prayed that His followers would have unity. He said, I don't ask, in John 17, 20 and 21, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. What a profound unity that they had. I'd just like to read some quotes to you. From McGarvey's commentary on Acts, he says regarding this unity, Considering the large number of persons in this congregation and the variety of social relations from which they have been suddenly drawn together, it is truly remarkable and well worthy of a place in the record that they were of one heart and soul. The unity for which the Savior had prayed was now enjoyed by the church and witnessed by the world. The most surprising manifestation of it was seen in the complete subsidence of selfishness, which led one and all to say that the things which he possessed were not his own, but the property of all. This was the spontaneous expression of the love of God and man, which had taken possession of every heart. A.C. Hervey in the pulpit commentary says, Rich and poor learned and simple, 
Levites and Jews were so united in Christ that all other distinctions were lost. Selfishness was gone, for each loved his brother as himself. What each man had, he held it not as his own, but as the Spirit of Christ for the good of all. The ordinary worldly life seemed to have melted into the life of faith and godliness. Their wants were spiritual. Their occupations were spiritual. Their joys were spiritual. In this happy state, in the clear atmosphere of love, the great truths of the Gospel shone out with marvelous brightness. The resurrection of Christ especially stood out in the lineaments of a distinct reality. And there was a rich glow of grace over the whole church. The unity that they had, even though coming from such diverse background, they came together to be of one heart and one soul, united. This did not mean that every member of this ten to 15,000 member congregation knew every other member. This did not mean that every member had somehow financially or even spiritually helped every other member in the congregation. That would be impossible. But what it did mean was that they were of the same mind and judgment based on that Apostles' teaching that they had heard. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul taught, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. It means that no one thought more highly of himself than he ought. Flip back a few pages to Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 says, For the, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It means that as they looked at others, they viewed the others as more important than, than themselves. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul taught in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. They were concerned about the interests of others and not themselves. No one was seeking the preeminence as Diotrephes in 3 John and verse, verse 4, excuse me, verse 9. I wrote something to the church about Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. And they did all of these things because they loved God and they loved each other. First John chapter 4 and verse 7 teaches us, Beloved, First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is the unity which God wants for us. This is the kind of unity that the Jerusalem church had, one heart and one soul, allowing them to put aside their own individual desires and goals in order to help the congregation and in order to help their brethren. Linsky says, regarding this in his commentary on Acts, as in a living body, only one heart beats. Its whole active life was one in thought, feeling, and will. One heart beats. One purpose. One goal. Accomplished by one group of people. What an amazing example the Jerusalem church sets for us. Not only were they continually devoted to worship in one heart and one soul, but they aggressively dealt with problems. Yes, they had unity. They had a great amount of unity. Yet at times, this unity 
this great body and bond of love was marred by a fly in the ointment. But when these problems came up, they didn't try to sweep them under the rug. They didn't try to ignore them and hope they might just go away. They aggressively dealt with them. For instance, in Acts chapter 5, the unity of purpose was marred by Ananias and Sapphira. You remember the story. Ananias and Sapphira had sold a piece of land. They had sold it for a certain amount, though it's not told us what it was, but they gave less than that and then told the congregation that the amount that they gave was the amount they had sold the land for. They lied. Their hypocrisy came through as they lied about that. We find here in Acts chapter 5 the very first recorded act of congregational discipline. Beginning at verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. Verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in not knowing what had happened and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. You think announcing a withdrawal from somebody is tough. It's harsh. Take a look at this. But they dealt with the problem quickly. Acts chapter 6, they had another problem. This time, it says in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The Hellenistic widows, of course, being those who had come in because of the feasts and had stayed there in Jerusalem. And their widows were being overlooked by the daily, in the daily ministration of food. And the problem went far beyond just the widows. It was dividing the congregation along racial and national barriers. But they didn't sweep it under the rug. They didn't hope it would just go away. They didn't hope it would just kind of work itself out. The apostles came along and said, we're going to appoint some men to take care of this problem. And they appointed these seven men. And in verse 7, the Word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. They dealt with the problem and they dealt with it quickly. And because they dealt with it, Christ's kingdom continued to grow. Acts chapter 15, we've got a doctrinal problem. Here we find in Acts chapter 15 that there were some who were continuing to believe that in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised and submit to the law of Moses before you could come into the grace of Christ. In Acts chapter 15, the congregation came together with the elders and the apostles and they discussed it. And they debated it out and they argued and they looked at what the Spirit had already revealed. And they came to a consensus. And then they sent out the letter to let all the churches know that had been affected by, by those who had taught error coming out from them. 
to let them know, here's what the truth is. Here's what we stand for. They came together with a consensus. Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And then they wrote this letter. They had problems. But they dealt with them quickly. They didn't let them linger. And because they dealt with them, they grew. They were victorious. They overcame. We continue to take a look at Jerusalem. And one of the keys that I think is most beneficial, one of the things that I think is most helpful, one that's often overlooked, is that the Jerusalem church didn't lose people in the crowd. Which is kind of an amazing thing, because the moment you start talking about a congregation growing and growing and becoming larger and larger, the number one fear that we have is that people will get lost in the crowd. Somebody needs some doctrinal training, but he's overlooked because we're helping everybody else. Or maybe there's a sister who is in pain spiritually and emotionally, but we don't notice that because we've got so many people. Or maybe there's a brother who's just missing, and we don't see it because of the huge crowd that's before us. So we worry about that, and a lot of folks say, well, that's why we just want to be a part of a small church. They weren't doing that in Jerusalem. How did they do it? How did twelve apostles hold a congregation of ten to 15,000 accountable to the Lord? How did they take care of the spiritual needs of the individual Christians with this great crowd coming together? I'll tell you how. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. They didn't just come together as a crowd. Being a part of the Jerusalem church didn't just mean you went to the assemblies and the Bible classes that the church was having. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, there's the assemblies, and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. They not only met with the crowd, but they connected with Christians at a smaller level. I don't believe that the Jerusalem church set up a group program. But I do believe that the Jerusalem church had lots of small groups working on natural levels. Perhaps folks of different ages, similar ages or similar occupation, or maybe they were from the same place or had similar interests. They would come together and they'd be drawn together and they would work with one another and they would hold one another accountable and they would stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. As you look at Jerusalem, the great amount of teaching and spiritual strengthening took place, not just as the crowd came together, but as Christians came together with one another, praising God and having favor with all the people, spending time with one another, getting to know one another, studying God's Word together, praying together. They didn't lose people in the crowd because they didn't just associate with people in the crowd. And when they came together as these groups, however they formed, they didn't just come together because they had been assigned. They came together because they cared about people. And they held each other accountable. And they strengthened one another. And they grew. They were victorious. And it goes on to point out that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
tell you what, the great amount of congregational growth was not taking place as the crowd came together, but as the Christians connected with one another in these house-to-house groups. I just think that's a powerful key to their success. If we want to lose no one in the crowd, we've got to learn to connect outside of the crowd. Further, the Jerusalem church understood something that so many folks today just simply do not understand. No one can do everything. Acts chapter 6 is a powerful story. And I'm afraid at times we've read it so often and we've studied it that maybe we miss what the great power and what it says about the way a congregation is going to work. But as the congregation was growing, they had a problem. There were some widows that were being overlooked in the daily ministration of the food, the benevolence that was being done, the relief for these saints. The apostles came along and said, we can't fix it. We've got our job. Our job is to pray and minister the Word. Acts chapter 6 and verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So nobody can do everything. The apostles couldn't do everything. They couldn't do their job and take care of the daily ministration for the widows as well. And so they picked out some men and said, you be over this and you make sure it gets done. I find this very interesting. And I'll just step up on my soapbox here again and point out that one of the things that often amazes me is to hear folks say, I want to go to a smaller church because there's more work for me to do there. The fact is, this work came about because the church was growing. There's work in every congregation, no matter what size. Here, seven more men had specific duties because of the growth of this congregation. Needs that came up as the congregation grew. And they had to be assigned and pointed in that direction. That's not to say they didn't do other things. We know they did some other things as well. But this was their duty. No one can do everything. They had to delegate responsibility and divide the labor. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, in that passage, Paul teaches a similar concept. Here's the general principle. The example we just looked at is a specific. But in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul said, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Each person has their own talents, their own strengths that they can supply to build up the congregation. Regrettably, however, we have filled our minds with this concept of the super-Christian who excels at every aspect of work within a congregation. And nobody like that exists. Paul himself could not do that. And neither can we. There is no need for us to feel guilty and there is no sense in us making others feel guilty just because we or they are not as good, at th- as good at certain things as some other people. I'll tell you when we need to feel guilty. 
When we need to feel guilty is when we are not working in our strengths. When we are not doing what we can do to the best of our ability, no matter how we compare to others, no matter what others can do. When we are not doing what we can do, and when we are not growing in that and doing it to the best of our ability, that is when we ought to feel guilty. But we need to understand that no one can do everything. And allow Christians to grow based on the talents and the gifts that God has given them. That's what's going to cause the body to grow. That's what they did in Jerusalem, and it worked there. It'll work for us as well. Further, they were bold in the face of rejection. They did not back off from teaching just because folks were upset by what they had to say. They knew that many people were going to reject it. They remember what Jesus had taught, that only few would follow the narrow way. Many would follow the wide way. But they continued to teach the truth. In Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested and threatened. In verse 18 of Acts chapter 4, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. But I want you to notice... Instead of listening to the threats, in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. In Acts chapter 5, after the issue with Ananias and Sapphira, all of the apostles were arrested. They were beaten. They were charged not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. In verse 40 of Acts 5, the council took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. Verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred and executed for his faith. There at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, because of this, a persecution started. But what did they do? Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. They did not allow the fact that the majority of the world and even the religious world were opposed to what they were teaching to stop them. They continued standing out. They were bold in the face of rejection. They taught the Gospel. And you've read the book of Acts. You know what happened. They grew because of it. One of the things we've got to understand is that Christianity is a taught religion. People do not become Christians. They do not have their sins forgiven unless they are taught. And we've got to be bold in the, even in the face of rejection, teaching the gospel, no matter what others think. They didn't rely on free agents. This is a tough one for me to talk about because it deals with, uh, with my profession, for lack of a better word. I've become somewhat disillusioned with the way preaching takes place. I don't necessarily know how to fix it, and I realize that I'm a part of the system as much as anybody else. But you see, the way it's gotten to be today is almost as though preaching is a professional activity. And there are certain people who accomplish that, and they decide to be preachers, and then they start looking for jobs. And it's almost like sports where you want a good quarterback. 
and you've got a whole group of quarterbacks or pitchers out there, and each team trades them off every now and again. You've got these free agents, and, and that's kind of what preachers have become today. We're free agents. And the big problem with that is that us professional preachers, we don't ever connect very well with the congregation. The fact is, in that system, well, I'm the preacher, and you're the congregation, and whether you want me to or not, you believe that someday he's going to leave us anyway. And it just doesn't allow for the connection. Now, I'm not saying that it's unscriptural for preachers to move frequently. Paul did it. I'm not saying it's unscriptural for people to go out and get somebody they want to come work with them. They did that in Antioch when they got Saul. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that in the Jerusalem church, that's not the way they worked it as the norm. That's not what they did in general. In general, they didn't rely on free agents. They built up their farm teams. Instead of hoping that somebody out there somewhere had been trained enough to fill the roles that they wanted and needed, they worked on building up the members of their congregation to make sure that the work could be done. And amazingly enough, because they did that, not only was the work done in Jerusalem, but they had then had people trained so that they could go out and work elsewhere. You take a look at Stephen. Here was a member of the congregation. He wasn't one of the apostles, but he was trained up and able to teach. And so in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Here was a man that had been developed. And he didn't have to go call the apostles every time he got into discussion with somebody. He was able to teach because he had been developed and trained. What about Philip? One of these seven who had been chosen to minister to the widows, also developed, built up, so that when, he, when the scattering took place, he went to Samaria and he taught. Verse, uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Barnabas, in Acts chapter 11, when the gospel had gone to Antioch, Antioch, here was Barnabas. Remember the son of consolation who sold the land and gave it all to the congregation to, in order to support the saints? When the church in Antioch was started, here was Barnabas, built up, trained, developed, such that in Acts 11:22, when the news of the church at Jerusalem, when the news of the church in Antioch had reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, verse 22 of Acts 11, they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Here's the feeling I get about the church in Jerusalem. They were not as concerned about whether or not the guy who preached to them all the time died or moved on. Because they knew they had folks that could take care of them. They didn't have to sit back and hope that maybe they could find somebody else that would be as good as the last guy or better than the last guy or different from the last guy or whatever they wanted. Because they worked within their own group to develop and train folks. And of course, here I'm just speaking about even just preaching from the pulpit. What about every other aspect of the work? Developing and training the farm team to grow and do the work of ministry instead of hiring out as just a professional job. Interestingly enough, you take a look at the Jerusalem church and you realize they started off with 12 preachers and then just expanded it. Well, of course, if, if we have more than two or three guys that we call preachers in a congregation, we think that's liberal, but not in Jerusalem. They developed the folks within, and they were doing the work. And therefore, were able to go off when they were scattered. I tell you, to me, one of the greatest statements of all 
is in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Here's my question. If we want to be like the Jerusalem church, we ought to be developing every person here such that if a persecution arose in Franklin and we were scattered out, we'd all feel confident and comfortable going out and teaching the Word. That's powerful. They did that because they didn't rely on free agents. They developed the congregation. And finally, they set the world ablaze. As we've already seen in this last point, their work was not just about Jerusalem. It was about spreading the gospel of the kingdom. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, as we just read, here they had established and developed Christians such that when they were scattered, they were able to go off and teach the gospel. These folks in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, when they moved, they didn't have the luxury of going into town and deciding which congregation they were going to be a part of. They didn't have the luxury of saying, you know, I'm not going to move there because then I'd have to drive two hours to be a part of a congregation. They went in and got something started. They set the world ablaze. Acts chapter 11, we see an example of it. As some of those who had been scattered because of the persecution in Acts 11 and verse 19, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And they set the world on fire. They were not a mother church, but Jerusalem was a model church. And they established and grew Christians, which allowed the kingdom of God to spread out through the world. We can do that as well. But the sad part today is there's no elders that we can call anywhere and say, what is it that you all did to be just like the congregation in Jerusalem? If we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it based on what we see here. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. It may take us getting outside of our comfort zones in many ways. But this is what we can be. This is what we should want to be. A church like Jerusalem. Somebody needs to do it. And my question to you if not us, who? If not now, when? As we enter this new year, this is what I'd like for us to have constantly out in front of us. We want to be this kind of church. Doing what they did. Accomplishing what they accomplished. Serving God as they serve God. I certainly hope this lesson benefited you. Further, I hope you're inspired to help the church of which you are a member be like the Jerusalem church. Let's review the keys to Jerusalem's victorious success. The Jerusalem church, one, was devoted to worship. Two, was of one heart and one soul. Three, was aggressive in dealing with problems. Four, lost no one in the crowd. Five, knew no one could do everything. Six, was bold in the face of rejection. Seven, did not rely on free agents. And eight, 
set the world on fire. My question for you is, what can you do to help the congregation of which you're a part accomplish these keys? Again, I want to thank you for joining us at the Franklin Church for this study from God's Word. If someone has given this lesson to you, let me invite you to check out our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com to access numerous other lessons. Feel free to let as many others know about this resource as well. If you have questions about Christ Church, the Jerusalem Church, or the Franklin Church, feel free to contact us by calling 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.